Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I love when people recognize me because it just means people are watching the show and liking it. And I don't think they know my name even. I'm like Helena, but nobody can say that. And, you know, yeah, I find it very flattering. I'm Justin Jay. As a photographer, I've gotten to shoot rock stars, hip-hop moguls, world-class athletes, and some other truly extraordinary subjects. I'm fascinated by the backstories and life experiences that help shape these compelling people. The right photograph can reveal quite a lot about someone, but some stories can't be told with just a picture. Sometimes you need to sit down, listen, and dig a little deeper. This is The Plug. The myth of the overnight success is deeply ingrained in American culture. With the proliferation of social media, the gatekeepers of access to the public's attention have swung wide open. Now it seems that anybody with an iPhone and a dream thinks they're just one viral video away from discovery and stardom. But in reality, Malcolm Gladwell's theory that it takes 10,000 hours of practice in order to truly master any craft is an inconvenient yet infinitely more reliable roadmap for success. Today's guest is a talented stage and screen actress that's put in the time, paid her dues, and is currently having a well-deserved moment in the spotlight. She's appeared in many Broadway productions, including Wicked and Bullets Over Broadway, and she's currently starring in the critically acclaimed comedy series, The Other Two. So how do you summon the confidence, faith, and perseverance necessary in order to achieve the proverbial 10-year overnight success? And how do you handle the opportunities once they're finally in front of you? We'll find out as we sit down for an insider's perspective from this triple threat performer. Today, actress, newlywed, and the co-star of one of my favorite TV comedies of the season, Mrs. Helena York. Helena, thanks for sitting down. Good to see you. Good to see you. Um, you've had a pretty exciting last couple of months. Um, are, you, are you taking some time to savor it in or are you just jumping right back in? What do you got going on with yourself? Um, I'm jumping back in. It's funny. I, my mother-in-law called me. I, so I got married this month. You were there. We partied, we danced. It was really fun to dance with you and Lisa. And, um, my mother-in-law called me at like 4 15 PM the day we got back from our honeymoon to be like, how was it? And I was like, I'm not ready to download this. And then she said, um, she asked, she was like, Oh, what a letdown. <laughs> post-wedding. And I was like, what? I don't feel let down at all. I feel like life returns and then you just like get on your merry way and you start a schedule. And my husband was like back at work right away. And I was like back taking calls and doing my thing. And so you kind of jumped right back into it. Yeah. Which is nice. It's not like, oh, your life becomes this different thing now that you add marriage to it. It's almost like I jump back into it to a point where like I'm a little exhausted and I have plans all the time, which I don't know if anybody else is dealing with this fatigue of near constant. People are like, can we get together? And I'm like, no, I don't have any more. 
in her space. People are so starved for, for social interaction after the last couple of years. Yeah. And you feel this like need that you have to see everyone. Like I have a really hard time telling people now, like really hard time. Well, I want to jump right in. I want to just, let's get the plug out of the way right away. Season two of the other two, such an amazing show. If you haven't watched it, it's available on HBO Max. And it really is one of my favorite shows of the season. I'm not just saying that. It's just absolutely hilarious. And you guys just got picked up for season three. So congrats on that. Thanks, man. <laughs> um, so I have a question about that. So your first season was on Comedy Central. The second season, this, this last one, was on HBO Max. Was there a, a significant difference in tone of what you were able to do on one versus the other? Because one of my favorite episodes from this season was there was a show that revolved around a dating app. that There was a mishap with some butthole pics, which was... <laughs> Like so hilarious. I mean, was there anything that you were able to get away with this season that was that felt different? Um, it's a really great question. The answer is boring. Um, first season was Comedy Central, as you said, and then second season was going to be Comedy Central. And the entire season was written and completed by January 2020. And we started production on season two with every we with thinking that we were going to be on Comedy Central. Um, our production started February 2020 and shut down on March 12th, and we were shut down for a year, but those episodes remained the same. Chris and Sarah did a really good job. Um, those are the show creators of amping up their season, and it's just it's exactly as it was intended for Comedy Central. It just happens to be on HBO Max now. Interesting. There's some pretty hilarious but risque themes in the show. I'm, I'm impressed that, that that would have been on regular TV. Yeah. I mean, I think that Comedy Central can get away with a lot. I mean, they do roast and I yeah. feel like South Park has gotten away with so much. And yeah. So there's definitely the bandwidth there for that. But no, yeah, we get asked that a lot, like about, oh, the difference of HBO Max. And then like the answer is like, no, we actually shot this over the course of a year and a half, which was the worst. But it was what it was. <laughs> well, so I was reading I was reading this interview a little while back with with uh, it was Robert Plant from from Led Zeppelin. And he was laughing about how often fans would come up to him and rather than ask for his autograph or his picture or his insights about Led Zeppelin, all they wanted to know was what it was like to play with Jimmy Page. And <laughs> we'll get to you in a minute, but I want to know what's it like working with Ken Marino? It's that guy, his, his comedy timing and his delivery, it was so just brilliant. I mean, were there any standout moments on, on set with him? <laughs> Um, I mean, yes, there are so many, um, can't really get through a scene with Ken Marino without laughing. I mean, he takes his own time and does his own thing. Um, I think that's one of the greatest joys of doing this for a living is I've had the wonderful opportunity of working with a lot of really funny people that I find incredibly inspiring. And I just remember when I found out that Ken was doing the show years ago, I was really nervous to meet him because I was of course a fan and, He's so funny and somebody I would consider funnier than me, but I'm trying to think of a standout moment, but every day um, at work with Ken feels like a standout moment as <laughs> cheesy as that is to say it's watching a strange brain at work is very funny. So, I mean, I think, I think he first came on my radar. I think it was like the last season, season four, I think of, of East Eastbound and down. He had a character arc on there uh -huh. and we we're so used to seeing the Kenny powers character as this kind of overconfident, like brash asshole. And, you know, they introduced Ken's mm -hmm. character and he kind of like flipped the whole thing. We got to see Kenny Powers kind of like on his heels and a little bit insecure. And it was really interesting. But, you know, I got to thinking, you know, Streeter, Ken's character on your show, he's also very insecure and he's very needy. And I'm wondering, is that, was that something that was built into the character from the script from the beginning? Or 
did you guys kind of develop that dynamic as, as you all work together? Um, that's a great question. I think what, again, what makes Chris and Sarah so brilliant is that they wrote characters for the pilot. And then I know that they met with Ken to see if he wanted to play Streeter. And then moving forward, these characters were really written around the actors they had hired, which I thought was incredibly smart. Ken does a very good job of being someone with bravado who is inherently deeply insecure. It's something he does across the board, like, you know, for his whole career. Um, so yeah, I think I think it's funny, the idea that this person be this powerful music manager, but actually, you know, want love and be worried that people are talking about him behind his back. Um, that's what makes working on a show for like, over a spell of now 20 episodes. That's such a pleasure is that it's tailored to you. And I think certainly in Ken's case, tailored to him as well. I mean, it would be so boring if he was just blanketly confident. Like that would be, it would be such a douchebag. <laughs> oh no. I mean, I think that's what makes it so three-dimensional because it's, yeah, he's like, he's, he's this kind of outward douchebag, but he's, it's based out of an insecurity. I mean, that's what kind of like makes it empathetic. In a yeah, way. yeah. And I think that's what makes Ken such a special person is that, you know, while he's Ken Marino and we, walk around and get dinner all the time. And he was living with Drew at the time. And, you know, we spend time together because he comes in town from LA to shoot here in New York. And he gets recognized like crazy, like on a near constant basis. But at his core, he's just a really sweet, good man. He's got two kids and his wife and, you know, he loves his friends and he's a very loving person and dad. And I, I think that's what makes him so great. He's, he's not living his life. Like he's, you know, Ken Marino, he's living his life. Like he's Ken and, you know, having the people around him that matter. I feel like it shows through in his character too, because it's the fact that we're all a little bit in on the joke that I think he is probably a nice guy and he's playing this <laughs> asshole. I mean, I think okay. that if he was, if he was truly that person, I don't think anyone would want to hang out or watch him as much as we do, you know? I think that's goes for everything he does. You know, everybody says, oh, he played a type. or But I think we're all good at something. I think Ken is... It's just so funny that you mentioned it because now thinking back on other stuff he does, it's like such a through line of his work, right? To be a dude with bravado who's actually deeply insecure. I think yeah. he finds masculinity funny. Like <laughs> the idea that you be this like macho dude and that be, you know, the center of who you are. I think that he knows and inherently feels that is funny. He's physically a pretty big dude, right? Yeah, he's a big guy. He's like six something and, you know, he's in shape. He fasts every month for three days he does like a juice cleanse um and so you'll be like ken let's go out for dinner and he's like i can't i'm on the cleanse like he'll, it's a three days you have to just leave him alone and he gets really cranky and you steer clear um that's so funny i love contrasts like that between character and and and, and actor yeah. yeah and sometimes he just calls me up to tell me he's like proud of the work i did on the show it's really crazy he's he's a good friend and i think he's excellent on the show and 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 also just like such a nice balance for what the environment on the show is which is this you know in the biz type of vibe and i think the biz is way sillier and dumber than most people on the outside would maybe know it to be and that's what makes the show funny i think the biz is like deeply dumb <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, getting back to, you know, you talking about cracking up doing scenes with him. I know, you know, on a, on a set, time is such a finite resource, especially on TV, as opposed to maybe a feature where the budgets are a little higher and you might have more time to kind of explore a scene. Like, give me a rough estimate. What's a window of the amount of takes that you would do on an average scene? Because I mean, I'm actually more interested, not when you're not nailing it, but when you are nailing it and the material is working and it's hilarious. Like, how much latitude do you guys have to do 
alternate takes and improv and stuff like that? Um, we do a lot of takes on our show. So we have a lot of opportunities to wiggle around in the material and find what's funny about it. And then in the editing room, they have a heyday of, you know, what really works ended up working. Right now, there's a big IOTSI movement happening. So crews will strike because I think that we generally need more time to shoot episodes. But, you know, it's it, these are crazy long days. Um but again, we're always having a good time and cracking up and laughing on set. There is room for improv, but on our show, we're pretty by the book on it, which again is a question we get asked a lot. Like, how much are you improvising? And it feels improvisational again, because I think the writing is so good for each actor. It feels like it's really coming from us because the writers who wrote it know, know what we do well. And uh, oftentimes Chris or Sarah, who created the show, will direct episodes and give notes like we'll be doing takes and they're just not getting what they want. And they'll come out from behind the camera and they're like, can you just do it the way you would do it? <laughs> and that's the yeah. note, which is like you forget. You're that overthinking it. It's You're written for you. It. Yeah, yeah, it's written for you. Do that thing that you would do, like say this the way you would say it. It seems so simple, but it's I'd be like, oh, right. OK. And then it would be two takes and would be done. Is there a lot of gold on the cutting room floor? Yes, especially with Ken, especially with like Ken and Drew, who improvises a lot. Yes, there's a lot of gold. And it's funny. We talk about it after watching the episodes, moments that we remembered that didn't make it in or a line that was like cut for flow or time or anything like that. And, you know, and I think what's nice about having a lot of takes in the environment that we are in is that how something is funny and especially in this show, it, it, the jokes are coming at you fast and loose and finding a balance is it's like a calibration, right? Like you're kind of turning different knobs. So like sometimes you'll watch a scene and you'll realize like, oh, they, they skipped out on this. Or I remember what I thought on this line and they used the take. I felt maybe the, the least good about it in the moment, but I have to say with, with, with this show is that I'll watch it and I'll be like, I know what I did for the majority of takes. And then that was like one of the last two and I'll think, oh, they were right. The note was right. They were, it was much better smaller or it was much better thinking of it in that way. So yeah, watching it get, come together is amazing. How come you guys have the luxury of, of doing so many takes like that? We don't, we run out of time. Okay. <laughs> right. I mean, if you've ever been on a set, if anybody listening has ever been on the set, you're constantly running out of time. You're, you know, your line producers, like we've got to keep going. And, um, it's, it's hard. It's hard to make, it's a balance about where you have time and where you don't for sure. So I'm wondering, you know, where did you get your desire to perform and your, your sense of comedy? Cause you find with so many funny people, especially stand up comics, not always, but often that sense of humor is born from a place of, of sadness or of childhood pain. But I don't I don't really get that sense from you. Am I am I incorrect? <laughs> or, or <laughs> no, you're correct. I have a um, sometimes I feel that I lack depth due to my lack of childhood pain. Um, <laughs> no, I have a very um, I have a very funny dad. Like he's always been somebody who like at dinner parties and, you know, growing up, observing him and how he, you know, had a room in the palm of his hand and, you know, inflection and timing and not being afraid to look stupid or sound stupid or bear who you really are. I think comedy is truth. And, and a lot of people get the ability to look stupid because it's their way to cover what they're sad about their, you know, shame that they feel or things that embarrass them. They're like, well, if I bring it to the forefront, that'll make it not exist. 
But for me, it's, I think, and, and for a lot of people, I think it's just saying like, I, it doesn't bother me if I look dumb in this moment or if I don't look beautiful or if I don't look smart or something like that. I think, and that's what's funny. I think, you know, the the cracks in between, like, I don't know about you all walk around New York and you see now these Instagram photo shoots happening all the time and people are taking themselves so fucking seriously and there is nothing, there's nothing funnier than an Instagram photo shoot. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and the, everybody's the duck deep face deep. and the posing and, and the ass like, out and like wanting so badly in a moment to look cool. Like that to me is the funniest fucking thing. And like one of my favorite things that happens to, in New York is when you're like sitting in an outdoor cafe and there's like a girl or a guy and they're like walking down the street, listening to their headphones and they're just like living their lives and they are amazing. And they're like strutting their stuff and then they trip <laughs> And then the the look that goes over their face, like that comes over them, it just like the veneer drops because they're like, oh, they either try to pass it off or pretend it didn't happen or, you know, cover for it in some way. And it's just the fucking best. And I think we're all trying to look so fucking cool all the time. But I think funny people know how to not know how to not <laughs> and are happy to not. Well, that's what I thought was so interesting about, you know, I was, I was fortunate. I got to go to your wedding. It was such a beautiful ceremony. Thank you for having me. Um, but in addition to being heartfelt, it was really funny. There was a lot of really funny moments um, from all your family. And I was wondering, you know, was that emblematic of, of you growing up and that really informed where your sense of comedy comes from? Or was there an element of them kind of stepping up and feeling like they had to really perform because of where you are in your career right now? Um, yes, I grew up in a funny house where we we would have family dinners on Friday, Saturday, Sunday nights. We were always in conversation with each other, very loud, very opinionated people. It can turn very easily into like a bloodthirsty fight. But we, we say what's on our mind. We feel things in deep ways and make them known. And, you know, it's, these are good. This is good. And this is also bad. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think there's a freedom of expression that I grew up with. That is the reason I do what I do for a living, for sure. You know, it's funny because you get exposed to other people's families or you hear what people deal with in their own families. And it's like, well, we don't talk about that or, or, you know, my, my dad has never acknowledged X, Y, Z or whatever. And it's just always so interesting to me because I'm like, oh, we, we, I did not grow up like that at all. We said everything again, this is not always good. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that was a three line with the wedding. I mean, I felt like there was, it was, it was funny and there was some, there was a couple cringe moments, but like, that's what made it unique and real and truthful. And I, I think people really appreciated that, you know? Yeah, it's funny because my husband's family talks less to each other in truths, and um, I do <laughs> within their family. Um, and it's been, I think, I hope for them, kind of an interesting addition to their dynamic <laughs> to have me being like asking the brothers, so Scott, who you fucking? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I think there's something, there's a power in in that honesty to be able to disarm people, you know, and I think... Well, you cut through shit. You know what I mean? Like, I just like, it's, it's so interesting to me. Like people tell me, like, I don't know if you have this experience, you know, Oh, I'm going through this thing with my friend and I'm watching this happen. I'm like, well, then why wouldn't you fucking tell them? <laughs> like, it's insane to me. You wouldn't just be honest. 
because oftentimes it, it cuts deep, but it's like, just be honest because, you know, real friendship and real connection is going to come from you being able to be open with somebody. And that's how you build something. I think really solid and real that stands the test of time because you were talking about shit. Otherwise you just like bottle this crap up and you don't know what's going on with anybody at any given time. And you feel sort of lost and disconnected and like, you're not getting what you need out of a situation. And it's like, just be honest. Um, so, I mean, you talked before about, about the biz and I want to get your take on something. So, you know, you ended up marrying outside the biz, quote unquote, and <laughs> you know, your man, you snagged a tall, attractive, <laughs> incredibly smart, like just an all around rad dude. Shout out to Barry. What's up, my man. <laughs> um, but you know, a lot of actors don't do that. A lot of celebrities don't do that. You know, they tend to marry each other. And I've always been so curious about that. And I think it, if you would ask them, they might say, oh, well, it's just, it's such an incestuous scene. And those are the only people that we meet and it would make sense. And I, was, I guess that's true, but you could say that about anything. I mean, you don't see a lot of veterinarians marrying other vets or lawyers marrying other lawyers to the same degree. You know, is it really more just that when you become extremely successful and rich and hot that you're now able to marry other people that are extremely rich and successful <laughs> and hot? And so you upgrade? I mean, is there anything intrinsic about the profession that makes it a unique experience? Or is it really just like, man, well, why wouldn't I want to marry a fucking hot celebrity? I mean, what, what what's your take on that? Um, you know, I, when I was single, I was like, I wouldn't rule out dating an actor. But because I think that artists are fun. I think, you know, I, I meet other straight dude actors. And I'm like, it's fun. It's a ride to be with somebody creative. I understand falling in love with that. And I think to say, you know, like veterinarians don't marry other veterinarians. What I think is more rare is like stepping out of a comfort zone. Like a veterinarian is still probably marrying somebody they met in college or like a part of their friend group, somebody they've been with for seven years, you know, but I think like celebrities marrying celebrities, I look at somebody like, for example, like Katy Perry is with um, Orlando Bloom. And if you're Katy Perry, it's got to be so hard to go on a date with somebody like my husband. Like if you went out with Barry and you were Katy Perry, Barry would probably be like, holy shit, I'm out with Katy Perry. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? And she doesn't probably want that. You know, I think that fame like that is in many ways, very, very limiting. You would think that, oh, it opens your world up to so much, but it doesn't. It's like its own little prison to feel like, oh, I'm so known. Anybody going out with me walks into this date with me with like an impression of how it's going to go or who I am. And I think that's really hard. What I don't get is people that turn their marriages into like commodities that do things as like, we're a famous pair. Yeah. And I'm like, but then you have to spend every waking moment with your partner. And like that to me is a big no thank you. <laughs> you lose your sense of self. I mean, you're one half of a brand. Yeah. And that. like, and yeah. at the end of the day, how do you connect as a couple, like in the quiet of your house without whatever? Or is it all just like, are you always scheduling like the next thing you have to do or anything like that? Like, I love when you see like a, like, I think Jennifer Lawrence just married some guy that, like, owns galleries. And she's not public about it. She doesn't have an Instagram. And I'm like, I think that's dope. Didn't Cher marry, like, a plumber or something at one point? Like, Did she marry a plumber? Yeah. Something or a carpenter. Like, a like, it was definitely not a famous guy. Ariana Grande just yeah. married a real estate agent. 
And I'm like, and it's so funny, like maybe these, maybe this will happen more often, but I'm like, wow. But then I look at like Haley Bieber and Justin Bieber and I'm like, you guys have separate careers, obviously, but like your relationship is a commodity. It's wild. So interesting. But again, you're Justin Bieber. Like I get it. You know, you've been famous since you were whatever. She's a Baldwin. I mean, I just think that's the that's the circle in which you're in. But I think, you know, it's also a lot of actors say, well, I want to marry an actor because they understand what I do. Or I need to be with an artist because they understand the like ins and outs. They're patient with my weird schedule. And it's like, I just think that excuse is kind of bullshit. Like whoever you're with should love you and support the twists and turns of your schedule in your life. Well, I mean, have you guys been able to navigate that pretty well? I mean, you it's obviously on a much smaller scale, but I mean, has there been any conflicts in terms of your schedule and your lifestyle and your traveling and, and you know, your career? Right. I mean, he's uh, amazing. Um, you know, when I'm shooting, I'm at work till sometimes, you know, four or five in the morning if we're doing like a night night shoot or until the sun comes up and I'm going to bed while he's waking up. And, you know, what's weird about what I do is that it's fleeting. It happens in fits and starts. If anything, I find his job more difficult to understand. <laughs> like, you know, he's he sometimes he goes to work nine to six or whatever during the week, but then like sometimes has to bang shit out on a Sunday. And I'm like, what is this? Like that to me is so foreign. It's more of a learning curve for me to understand his schedule. During the pandemic, I would like cook dinner and I was like always around. And at at one point I had like a chip on my shoulder. I was like, I'm not a housewife. I'm not here to just like cook dinners and do all this shit for you. And he's like, I know that. (laughs) But again, like he's a, he knows who he married. He knows what my schedule is. I mean, yes. Is it, it does sometimes stuff come up at like very inopportune times. And it has to be a conversation of like, whether or not I do it based on, you know, what our life is doing or whatever. And um, trying to get him to understand what's important, but Basically, anybody that lives any sort of a freelance lifestyle is going to have the same scheduling conflicts. Oh, my God. Yeah, exactly. And it also I and I and I think that it's on I think it's on the freelancer. I think it's on the artist to be patient with somebody who doesn't have that free life, free um um, freelance lifestyle. Freelance lifestyle. I don't mean to say like, as a woman, put yourself aside for the man, but like, you have to be patient and understanding. I think for the other, for the other party, the person who's being like, wait, we can't go on this trip because you have to do this random reading. Like, I've booked all the flights, and you're like, yeah, yeah we have to cancel it. And I've been there. Trust me, I've been there. Yeah, we've all <laughs> been there. I have. Uh, I, I chose to marry a successful freelance woman myself. So yes, and I. It almost happened with our honeymoon, and it was. And and I. I really do believe this. I think it's on us to understand that it's frustrating for the other person, and it's hard, but. Again, like, I think if you married another actor, you'd be dealing with opposing schedules as well. So you'd be rounding up against the same conflict. So I think that that excuse is kind of BS. Like, yeah. somebody needs to get what I do. It's like, no, they don't. <laughs> well, so, I mean, you've got the, I feel like the reviews, the reviews for the other two have been amazing. I've seen you in a lot of really beautiful photo shoots lately, by the way. I've been following your stuff on Instagram. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> um, you, uh, you got a little heat on you right now. I, I'm curious... Does this feel like a, a transformative chapter in your career? Is this, does this feel different or similar to other kind of arcs or, or, or periods of your career? It's a really good question. And 
I'm at a place in my career where I've had the expectation that certain moments were going to be a moment and that, you know, it was going to catapult me into the next thing. And do I feel that I have heat on me right now? Like, yes, of course. It's fantastic. Like people are loving the show. They're loving my work. It's so gratifying to be a part of something that I love and believe in and that people are watching it and liking it and following me on Instagram or, you know, whatever. But I think what I've gained over the course of probably the last, like, I don't know, six years is, you know, you can really die at the helm of your own expectation for your success or where something will lead you. And while, yes, I feel it, I'm like, yeah, but there's still work to do. There's still stuff to show up for. There's still whatever else. And I just think it's just like an amazing expansion on what I've been building for almost 15 years. Um, it definitely feels different, but I think what's so nice about it is that it just means that there's new opportunities for expanded creativity, which is all I could ever want. You know, the idea that interesting people want to talk to me now about projects or I've been writing with my friend Max and pitching a TV show and, you know, just doing other things and not feeling like I'm this random outsider. I think that that's what it is, right? Is that like in this business, it's so easy to so often feel like an outsider or that nobody's... I Just for example, like I sat down to journal the other day because I was feeling a little overwhelmed. Like everything was coming at me fast and loose. And I was like, oh my God, there's just so much going on. I got married and I'm home and everybody wants to talk to me and blah, blah, blah. And I went to sit down to journal and the last entry I had done was in April. And the entry was like, I feel stuck. I'm ready to, for movement again. Like, I feel like I've been standing still for two years, whatever. And I saw that journal entry and I was like, oh, right. <laughs> Every moment comes with, you know, the parts of it that are scary or frustrating. So I'm just trying to ride it because I think when you're riding high, enjoy it because it, it ends. You never know. You just never know. And I've experienced this in my career too. Like there was this, you know, this false notion that like, oh, well, I got this cover or I shot this album cover or I got this project and I'm just going to just leap into the stratosphere of the next chapter. And it's like, it doesn't really happen that way. I mean, at best you can hope for is opportunities, you know, open doors, but you still got to do the work and you still got to continue what you've been doing the whole career. Yeah, that's how I try to explain it to friends of mine that have corporate jobs where there's kind of a line, right? That it's like, okay, you're at this job and then you interview for the next one and you make a little bit more money where it's like a bigger deal of an opportunity. And it sort of has like a nice, you know, line that kind of goes steadily upwards. But for artists, then again, this is another thing that I think artists are attracted to being with other artists because they understand this kind of like up and down is that, yeah, it's like, it doesn't just automatically mean you get the promotion. There's no promotion. Yeah, You still are trucking along, trying to get, like, I had to still had to do an audition the other day and like thought my tape was okay. You know, like I still had to prove myself. Yeah. I'm always curious about people's relationship with, with, with fame. It would seem like from an outsider's perspective, maybe when you first start getting recognized on the street or whatever, it'd be very novel, maybe flattering. It'd be fun. And then it would seem to kind of plateau and it's something that you just kind of learn to accept and it's part of life. And then for a very small segment of people in the business that are extremely famous, it would just become debilitating where you, you can't even live your life and it kind of works against you. Where, where on the spectrum are you right now? Like how often do you get recognized? Um, are, are you comfortable with, with that, with that attention right now? Um, I'm still on the novel end of that. I love when people <laughs> recognize me because it just means people are watching the show and liking it and yeah. That's all I care about. And I don't think they know my name even. Like I, I'm, I'm like Helena, but nobody can say that. And, you know, 
But I feel like in the sense the people that would that would stop and talk to you on the street are a they're actual fans and they know the work. They're not they don't know you because of the image of Helena from whatever action movie or whatever. Yeah. It's like they actually know the work. You know, I think that would be really flattering at this point. Yeah, I find it very flattering. I sometimes get recognized. The other day it happened to me on the subway for I love you. I saw you in your I saw you in American Psycho on Broadway. Like I get I get Broadway recognized sometimes, which is often one of the most satisfying because that show ran for six weeks, right? So it's like if somebody saw that. <laughs> it's funny. I actually want I wanted to ask you about that. That was one of my questions. So I got to see you perform American Psycho and Broadway. Uh, it was a short-lived production, but I thought you were fantastic in it. And it was really interesting for me to get to see you in that context because I don't see a lot of theater. I don't get to, to go to plays very often, but you know, I have been on movie sets. I've shot on TV and movie sets and the, the pacing is so slow. I mean, you do a couple scenes, you cut, you do coverage, you reset you know, over and over and it's such a slow workflow whereas opposed to you know, being on, on stage on Broadway, you have, you have one chance to do that entire scene. And I can't even imagine that. Like, was, was that challenge something that seemed enticing to you or was it just terrifying? Um, I went to school for musical theater. So I have a degree in, in that. And it's not one shot to do a scene. That's what's so great about theater is that you work it in a room to death and it becomes one thing. And then you put it in front of an audience and it becomes something else. But the execution, you have one shot once you're on stage to, to do that. Right. And sometimes you fuck up and fucking up is like the most exhilarating thing in front of a lot of people. So I think more than anything with theater is that if you do a long run of something, yes, you have one shot that night to do that scene, but you've done it so many fucking times. It's just become, you're almost a robot with it and it's hard to find what's new in it. And that's what becomes the difference. The creative process of putting a show together is, I think, the best part about doing theater is like finding what works, testing things with an audience. You have the opportunity to do that. But with TV, every day is different. It's a slow work process. And, you know, you sit around waiting to get those takes in, but you're doing different stuff. And it's like those brief moments are these, especially on on sets, as you say, you're stopping, you're starting, you're doing different coverage, whatever those moments where you're doing what you're doing is like, it's what you're there for. And it's electric, but you know, theater is fucking exhausting. <laughs> well, when you're doing like a, a long run like that, you know, six weeks or longer or whatever, um, like how much of a living production is that play in terms of like from one performance to the next, or even from the first performance to the last, like how much does that play change in the course of that run? It's a pretty, like, once you lock it in, that's pre, you're like a robot, like you said before, and it's kind of the same, or are there a lot of subtle differences? And then what's the role of the director once it's kind of has its own birth and it's on stage? So it's a really great question. I ran a show once for a year, and when you put it on its feet, you get it, whatever, and then you start running it. And then in the first couple months, it starts to morph into something else. The first couple weeks, like especially with American Psycho, you're noted by the director. The director's watching every performance. You have an opening night and then that's your show. And then depending on audiences and like you start to find other moments in it that you didn't see before. You know, it's like if you went to look at a Monet every day for weeks and weeks and weeks, you would start to see other things in it, nuance that you didn't catch before, a brush stroke or anything. And it starts to morph and change and you start to become, you get to a place where you're crystallizing, you start to fire on all cylinders. But then you, I, I know I do this. I start to go a little bit too far 
And stage managers take the place as directors for a good part of the run. Stage managers on Broadway are, I think, very unsung heroes. They run understudy rehearsals and they make sure they keep you on track. Like, you know, don't forget you got this note. Pull it back, this, that, or the other thing. And then directors will visit and then come to your dressing room and be like, you forgot about this or you've gone too far with this and, you know, try to keep it together. That's why long, long, long running shows like Lion King, Wicked, um, I think Aladdin's still on Broadway. I don't know how they have Phantom of the Opera going. That's really amazing to maintain the original intention. How often would a, a director of Wicked attend a performance? I don't know how often Joe goes now. I was on the road with Wicked and Joe came like once every maybe three or four months, but the associate directors came more often. Wow. That, yeah. that infrequent. So there really is a sense of like, it's it's been birthed and, and now it's... Well. You're left alone with it. Yeah, there's like this saying that happens once you open it is that it's like it belongs to the company now. It's like the company's show. That being the company being the company of players. Yeah. And, it, but it's, it's hard. It's hard because then you start to find stuff and you feel that it's working, but it's hard to see the forest for the trees when you're in it, when you've been in it eight shows a week and they're trying to like make sure that the original message and intention is maintained. Do you know what I'm yeah. saying? Yeah. You can like get a little, I, I can't anyway, get a little off the rails. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, but this works. Um, cool. Well, we, we always like to end the show by giving guests an opportunity to plug something other than themselves that they feel really isn't getting the attention that it deserves, whether it's like a book or a movie or a TV show or a cause. Like, is there something you want to shout out to kind of give some shine to um, so that people can be aware of? Uh, yes. I'm obsessed with this show. It's on FX, but it's uh, and it goes on to Hulu, so you can stream it. it. They are airing the third season now, and the show is called What We Do in the Shadows. And have you watched that show? I feel like not enough people are watching this show. It is so fucking funny. They are so funny. I auditioned for it and like didn't get it, and I have a feeling I know who did, and I'm like, it hasn't aired yet, and I'm so excited to see because I'm just such a fan of the show. I think it is so, so, so fucking good. Were you a fan of the movie as well? It started as a movie, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. I've not seen the movie. Oh, it's hilarious too. Different players. It's um the Kiwi guy from from Flight of the Concords was in it. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very funny. Yeah, very, very, very fucking funny. I'm excited that you haven't seen that yet. It's like a nice little treat. Yeah. No. Yeah. Oh, speaking of some like being excited to me and seeing something, this is like a bit of a diversion from the question you just asked me. I spoke at my friend's class last night. He teaches like he was doing a little guest teaching at an NYU class. And one, one of the girls was wearing a clueless t-shirt and I was like, Oh my God, best movie. She's like, Oh, I've never seen it. I was like, what? She was born in 2000. And I was like, is this just a nostalgia t-shirt? She was like, yeah, like, you know, found it at Urban Outfitters. She's like, I'll get, I'll watch it. I'll watch it. I was like, it's clueless. You're acting like watching it would be a chore. Like, you're so lucky you get to experience it for the first time. Yeah, like, I'm jealous, actually. I know, seriously. A young Paul Rudd. Yes, exactly. Who looks exactly as he does now. Yeah, yeah. Uh well, Helena, you are having a banner year. I want to congratulate you again. Success of the show. Success of finding someone that makes you such a wonderful person. You and Barry are such a great couple. Thanks for having me at the Thank wedding. Um, and thanks for taking time out. Really, I appreciate it. I'm so glad you could do it. Well, I love you anytime. You're the fucking best. I will see you soon in person, hopefully, if I can squeeze it in your schedule. <laughs> Jesus Christ. It's like a one more dinner plan. I'm like, oh my God, I'm dying. All right. <laughs> but I love it. It's just, 
just like, oh shit. All right. Well, congrats again. Um, and plug one more time. Uh, the other two available on HBO Max and season three coming up soon. So congratulations. Thanks for listening. And a huge thanks to today's guest for dropping in. If you enjoyed this episode, do us a favor and take a minute to rate, review, follow, or subscribe. This episode of The Plug was executive produced by Ryan Bucci and Peter Buckingham. Theme music by Andrew Van Weingarten and Dan Drohan with sound design by Brad Worrell at Soundwag. Thanks again, and be sure to tune in for future conversations.